Welcome. 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 You're listening to Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Happy Latinx Hispanic Heritage Month, everyone. It's Alyssa and Taylor here, and we're back with another episode of Built by Us. And this episode is actually kind of special because it's our first episode in a brand new series that we are unveiling this month. Here on Built by Us, we are actually going to be celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month by meeting with Latinx movement makers from all over North Carolina. So from students to organizers to executive directors, we can't wait for you all to hear from all of these amazing guests just as we celebrate Latinx culture, contributions, heritage, history. Yeah, Taylor and I are pretty excited about this one, aren't we, Taylor? Yes, I am super excited that it's been a long, you know, it's been a long time since February when we had um, our Black History Month series. And I'm excited to learn more about some of our movement makers here in North Carolina that are at the forefront of their various organizations and um, various issues, as well as the fact that I'm super excited that we're starting off today with our wonderful guest, Manny Mejia Diaz, who is our, yes, woo. Um, our uh, Manny is our uh, regional managing organizer for the southeast area of North Carolina. And Manny, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. This is actually very exciting. Yes. So why don't you tell us and our listeners about yourself? You've been with DMNC for a while now, but it's your first time on the podcast. So um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what you do in the southeast. Absolutely. I don't I don't even know where to start, to be honest with you. But I guess uh, I was born and raised in El Salvador. I came here to the U.S. whenever I was 11 years old, and I've been calling the Southeast my home ever since, I believe, 2005. Um, so I, I, I went to school here, graduated from college here in the Southeast. I had a brief stint to where I left, and I went to New York City and did some work over there. But then I got homesick. My family was here. It's it's so completely different, right? Uh, we, and you don't have to be an expert in in you know culture or politics to see that difference between the southeast and New York City. So I came back, uh, but I wanted to be involved in a way where I was really making an impact in my community, helping people in my community. So I decided to become a social worker. Um, with the Robinson County Department of Social Services. So I did that for two years, but then I wanted to be involved in my community in a different way, something, because as a social worker, I, I saw all of these inequalities, I saw all of these issues impacting my community. And, and there was a lot of pressure placed on social workers, but not enough pressure placed on the elected officials to actually implement change in policies in Robinson County, in Bladen County, in Scotland County, and other areas in the Southeast. And I saw that as something that just needed to change. So whenever I was looking around to see what organizations were out there that were at, you know, so, so I can get involved politically, Democracy NC came up and I just jumped at the opportunity. And ever since then, we've been building coalitions throughout the Southeast. And I've made it my mission to touch areas where, where we haven't really been like Robson County, like Bladen County, Harnett, Hoke, expanding outside of Fayetteville, not necessarily be emphasizing the importance of Fayetteville in the southeastern region, mm-hmm. but recognizing that we have potential partners. We have people that can actually make a huge impact in the area outside of the Fayetteville region. So I've been trying my best to just go out there, 
make these connections and do some good work. That's awesome. And you certainly are doing good work. We were just talking before we even started about how you've been spending this entire week going from county to county across North Carolina, just speaking at the redistricting public hearings and really just being a voice for North Carolinians. So yeah, thank you for everything you do. Absolutely. And I, and I, I got to give some credit to our partners in the Southeast. You know, Democracy NC is just one organization that we really can't do this work without the people in the ground. Uh, and, you know, our partners, our supporters, the people just who are impacted day to day by these decisions, they are democracy. Uh, and it's 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 always a pleasure and an honor to work with them. I love that. We are all democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you mentioned that when you started working in the Southeast, you were a social worker. So how did you get activated in the first place? What brought you to the point in time where you knew that you had to do that as a job? So that's actually a, a, a very good question. I know you get that from a lot of your, uh, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of the guests here in the podcast, but my background is actually in international relations, uh, mm. conflict prevention, human rights. So whenever I was, work, I was in New York, I was doing that human rights kind of work, right? Um, and whenever I came back, I said, okay, clearly I'm going to have to have a career change, but I don't want to you know, separate myself too much from helping people from, you know, just doing what I really love, which is people centered. So social work was just an obvious connection and obvious transition. And the funny thing is uh, that social work and organizing in democracy and see is a smooth transition. A lot of the same skills that I learned through social work, I'm incorporating them in the organizing sphere. And it's, it's been I like to say quite successful. Uh, of course, there's always more room for improvement, but it it just worked. It worked. Yeah, I definitely agree because I we have um, like a, a small program in the Durham office where masters of social work um, students come on as fellows, but at least in my time at DEMNC, you're the first social worker who's come on after you know doing that as a job, and I agree with you. I think that the transition has been quite seamless because your background, as you said, is like so human and person focused. Um, and to be an organizer, we know that you have to care about the people in which you're in community with um, and in the communities that you're trying to build up and support and empower. So being, you know, person driven uh, allows you to be then people driven and community driven, you know, so, um, I totally agree with you. And I think it's been an exciting thing to see, um, you expanding the communities in the Southeast because just any part of the East in North Carolina, we know, you know, struggles to get the attention that, that they deserve. No, I think, I think you're right on that one. It's, it's definitely an overlooked, overlooked communities across the Eastern part of the state. Um, a very impoverished communities, very unique issues, not only with, uh, you know, voting rights, but also gerrymandering, uh, environmental issues, extreme poverty, lack of internet access. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it, it's an area that's actually very difficult to organize, is very difficult to reach, but uh, I like to say the democracy NC always meets those challenges head on. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So what would you say is from being a social worker and an organizer is your personal theory of change? 
my personal theory of change is actually quite simple. And it's something that we emphasize every single day in Democracy NC, and that is it starts at the grassroots level. Uh, any change you want to implement, you really need the assistance and support of the grassroots movements so of, of people on the ground, everyday individuals. They have to support your cause in order for that to actually be implemented in society as a whole. Um, it, it, it doesn't start from elected officials. Elected officials don't think about the ground level as much as we like to you know, say they do. It really begins from applying pressure as a community to make that change happen. Uh, and there are multiple organizations in the Southeast are actually doing just that, doing groundwork level and then eventually seeing, uh, you know, good results from that upward pressure. Pressure is a very specific point that you've brought to the conversation that um, a lot of our other interviewees don't, don't necessarily focus on. And so I think it's, I, I like hearing this perspective because it's, it feels more um, forceful and like, you know, we know what we need for ourselves. And so the focus is on us really asserting ourselves to the people in power in that moment to get what we need. So I like the way you said that. Yeah, most definitely, and 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 I think you have to use that language and be a little more, a little bit more aggressive, and whenever whenever you do that grassroots movement, because you can tell a politician really means what they say whenever they put those words into actual into action, right? If I hear an elected official say, "Let's have those uncomfortable conversations," we've been having uncomfortable conversations since the '60s, right? We need something on paper. Please do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's why we're like constantly annoyed. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to agree. And I wanted to ask you more specifically, you know, how do you think you're, you've kind of applied your theory of change while organizing in the Southeast? Yeah, you see, every time we do something, every time that there is a campaign, every time I have to contact elected officials because we are against this particular bill, every time we're trying to advocate for uh, more early voting sites or, you know, additional time for the polls to be open. It's never just me. Uh, you know, I, whenever I first started with Democracy NC, a partner sat me down and said, look, you, you have to bring more people to the table. It can't just be you because then it just gets old. These individuals are just eventually going to start ignoring you because, oh, here comes Manny again. So, Everything that we do in regards to democracy and see, and I like to say that my fellow organizers do this as well, is that we don't do anything alone, right? We're just one organization. We can't change everything. We really need to be in cooperation with different groups. That's what true grassroots mean. Coalition building, going forward as a coalition, going forward as a group of people, because our strength is really in numbers, um, and we have to utilize that, that strength. Absolutely. So switching gears a little, Manny, you have been sharing music with us every day in celebration of Latinx Heritage Month. Can you share with us a bit about your favorite music and why you see it as one of the most important pieces of your culture to celebrate? Yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, like I said, I was born and raised in El Salvador. You know, Spanish is my mother tongue. It's the first language I spoke. I, I started school five days after arriving in the U.S. without learning, without knowing a single word of English. So I had to go there and just really wing it, right? Um, and whenever whenever you're away from home, you, you try to find ways to just still feel attached 
to home and one of the best ways and easiest ways to do that is through music, to be honest. Um, I, I, I am a musician. I do play uh, uh, an instrument, uh, the drums to be more specific. Um, and, and music to me just means a lot because it's a it's a just a representation of culture. And whenever you hear traditional Latin American culture, you hear the color, you hear the energy, you hear how just unique it is. Uh, even sad songs in cumbia or salsa, for example, still have a very upbeat uh, rhythm to where you want to get up and dance. Even if the lyrics are talking about the most saddest possible things or heartbreak or whatever it is they're talking about, it's very energetic. So it, it just, it kept me attached to my culture. It kept me attached to where I'm from. And at the same time, I love sharing it because I'm sharing that color. I'm sharing, you know, uh, um, that energy with other groups. And I, I believe people really feed off energy and working at the General Assembly or working against bad bills that kind of is gloomy, right? <laughs> Oftentimes organizing can be a very gloomy thing. So I try to bring what I like to say, some spice into the conversation, some spice into life. Um, and what better way to do that than music? And I know I've been sharing multiple examples, you know, internally, of course, uh, with, with the people because I want them to not only hear Latin American music, but just see how different it is. I know to someone who is, you know, not used to hearing it, maybe not, has never really experienced it. It, it all sounds the same, but whenever I share a song, as you can tell, I always put a description. This is what this is. This is how this is unique. This is what that is. This is how this is unique. Uh, but, you know, going back to your other question of what's my favorite kind of music, I got to say it's cumbia. It's so versatile. Every country has their own unique style. Uh, you can dance it fast. You can dance it slow. You can dance it by yourself. You can dance it with a partner. Uh, it incorporates different instruments, different rhythms. Um, it, and it's, you, you, that's, that's, that's how you truly see the diversity in Latin America because, you know, uh, Peruvian cumbia is so different than Mexican cumbia and then Mexican cumbia is different than cumbia from Colombia, which is where that music actually comes from. So just wanted to, again, explain a little bit more about that diversity, show the colorfulness, show the energy and just how, how different it is. That's amazing. Yeah. I've been, I've been enjoying all the, all the videos that you've been sending um, so that I can be be more exposed to to the different musical genres because um it's been a long time since I've been in a Latin American country um where you know the music is all around you um so it's been a fun experience for me and I'm I'm almost already like sad for when you won't be sending more playlists to us um but I know that the rest of us have have really enjoyed it um do you think that, you know, your, your drum playing is something like, were you attracted to the drums because of the music you grew up hearing? Ooh, I never really thought about it. I, I, I guess so. But, you know, whenever you, whenever you listen to cumbia or listen to salsa, those are different drums than the drums that I actually play. But I can honestly see that connection. I guess it kind of does make sense. Um, and I, it's a pretty good mixture, right? Because I, I like to believe of myself as a very Americanized individual who still has those deep connections. Uh, so, you know what? That's actually a, a, a smooth transition from those drums into these drums. I like that. 
Yeah. I know you like to play a lot of 80s music, right? Is that it? 80, 80s yes. rock? Yeah. <laughs> 80s music for sure. The <laughs> 80s is the best decade for music. That may be controversial, but it's the truth. I would say it is controversial. <laughs> <laughs> but I really um, appreciate and agreed with what you said when you said um, how anytime you're away from home or your culture in general, you just you want to find ways to connect yourself to it. And so I'm kind of curious about what it's been like for you. You know, like you said, you've been in North Carolina since the early 2000s, what it's been like embracing and empowering your culture all the way over here in the Southeast. Like what exactly has it meant to you to be Latinx or El Salvadorian in North Carolina? What has that actually been like for you? You know what? And I, and I think this is a great time to kind of, break down some misunderstandings of rural communities, right? Because I came here from El Salvador without, without knowing a single word of English. Um, and I was welcomed in the community. You know, everybody, the kids were very helpful. I remember that, you know, whenever I was growing up in, in my neighborhood and I was trying to practice and a kid, I can't remember his name. He would follow me around and tell me how to say something in English. Um, and, and, you, you also see a, a huge diversity in rural communities because the southeastern, you know, part of the state has a huge uh, Latinx population, mostly Mexican for sure, but Robinson County, Bladen County, Cumberland County, Hope County, all the way up to Wilmington, the, the Latinx population is growing a lot. So whenever I was here, I, I didn't have to hide it because it was part of the culture. It was part of uh of what the southeast is like uh mm -hmm. th there's all kinds of people all kinds of you know backgrounds uh you know and 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 being latinx as a whole i didn't have to hide it but there were some differences between my mexican friends or my guatemalan friends um but that just made it even more exciting so it it, it to me Again, it, I hate to repeat myself, but it was a smooth transition. I never really had a problem, you know, uh, and everybody was just so helpful. And I know that everyone's experience is different. And I know that there's probably some horror stories out there. So I, I don't mean to de-emphasize those. But my experience was was that of, you know, welcoming. It, it was that of um, it, it's around you. It is the culture in the Southeast. Yeah, I really, I really love that. And I'm glad that you had that experience too. And like you said, something we talk about a lot when we ask questions like this is the experience is different for everyone, but it's also different where you are in North Carolina, because North Carolina can be drastically different depending on where you're at. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up. I also think that it's just, it's good to have these reminders about the assumption of rural communities and you know, we've we've had conversations on the podcast of other rural communities where people do feel unsafe, 100 percent. And like you said, and that is kind of that is kind of already the baseline assumption for folks who don't live in rural communities. And so for people who spend most of their time in urban or suburban areas, um, hearing what you have to say that, you know, rural communities are just as diverse as anywhere else have just as different experiences as anywhere else and that not being in a big city doesn't mean just one thing so you said all that already I just think it's important for to just really put a pin on uh, yeah absolutely look like there's you know 
just to give you more examples of why I just didn't have to hide it and, and why it's just embrace. You you go through Robinson County uh, down 301, for example, uh, you, you're going to find many, you know, Hispanic stores. You're going to hear Hispanic music whenever you're at a stoplight or at a stop sign. Um, there's Hispanic festivals, or at least they used to be before the COVID era. Um, uh, it, you go, there's Mexican restaurants all over the place in the Southeast, especially in rural communities. One of, one of the, I guess, quote unquote, hottest spots in Robinson County whenever I was um, uh, a social worker was this little restaurant in the middle of a cornfield. Uh, it, it was owned by uh, a Mexican immigrant. And that's, that spot was always packed. It was always packed. Um, uh, so it's embraced, it's appreciated. And um, I just got to tell you, it, it's, it's something magical to see. You know, she, her success was, was great to see. It, it was so successful that she had to open up a different location actually in town. So there you go. That's incredible. I love those stories. Also, just the idea of a restaurant in the middle of a cornfield is really fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I feel like uh, those are always the best restaurants, just like the little random ones in the most random places. Those are always the best ones. <laughs> and you definitely have to make sure that uh, you truly believe to not judge a book by its cover, because you look at it, and you're like, hmm, I don't know if I want to stop there. But once you do it, that is some of the most authentic Mexican food I've ever had. Um, uh, and, and the only authentic food I have is whenever I go to my friend's house and their parents are cooking for us or, mm -hmm. you know, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, talking about rural communities and kind of just bringing more attention to this idea of Latinx people in rural communities and the diversity, I want to know if there's any other issues or, you know, stereotypes that you might want to discuss or maybe bring attention to. Yeah, for sure. You look, you know, there there are some that are not, they're not meant to be insulting, right? Um, whenever you speak to someone uh, who is not very well knowledgeable of Latin America uh, in the Southeast, uh, mm -hmm. they may just automatically assume that you're Mexican. And then when you tell them, well, I'm not Mexican, I'm actually from this country, then there may be some under a misunderstanding of what that actually means. Well, what's the difference? Some of it is some of it sounds dismissive, and you can tell when that it is dismissive. But then some people utilize it as a way to learn more. They ask that question not to insult, but to honestly ignore. Like not ignore. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. To honestly learn um, what is the difference between the you know the Mexican culture and and Salvadoran culture and Colombian culture and Argent and people from Argentina. Uh, and if you know your stuff, you can actually explain that and, and really build those cultural bridges to, with people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I really, I really appreciate that because I, I feel like just recently, I remember when I got to college, somebody asked me for the first time, where are you from? And getting that question was so like impactful to me just because I feel like I'm so used to hearing like, what are you? you know, and just that difference of hearing somebody take the time or take the care. And when asking the question, instead of being like, what are you of being like, where are you from? Where, what country are you from? They wanted to know more in that way. And so I really appreciate hearing you say that. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you see that I've had that multiple, I've had that expression uh, or that question being asked to me multiple locations. I have long hair. I just keep the hat on because it's just better for me. 
uh, and my hair is so thick that if I go out in the southeastern heat, I'm just going to melt. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I see your hair, Alyssa. You, you know the pain all too well. Um, but, you know, I've been asked, what are you whenever I go to, let's say, Pembroke or, or, you know, in a Native American community, I have a long hair down. They think I'm Navajo. Uh, and then I try to explain that I'm not. And so like, what, what are you? Right. Um, but again, uh, you know, there, there, there is that. And I can kind of understand or maybe not understand, but kind of just see of why they would assume everybody is Mexican. It is the biggest demographic uh, in the southeastern part where, you know, most of Latinx individuals here are Mexican. And it's just how it is. So I, I completely understand that. But Another thing that I, I don't know if, if this is too too out there, but whenever you talk about stereotypes, not, not necessarily stereotypes specifically, but it, it, it comes with political outreach to the Latinx community. It's always about immigration. It's always about the same topic again and again and again and again. Oh, can you come over here and talk about the Latinx experience? Oh, by the way, it's about immigration. Oh, okay, great, okay. Oh, there is this Latinx event happening here. Can you come and speak? Oh, by the way, it's about immigration. Elected official is out here speaking to the people. Oh, by the way, it's about immigration. So not to de-emphasize the importance of immigration, clearly I'm an immigrant. So it really does matter a lot to me. And I know it matters a lot to uh, Americans in general. Even if you're not, you know, an immigrant, you know, it's, it's, it's the system in your country. So you should be interested in that, in that as well. But there is also a lot of problems in the Hispanic community where politicians are not talking about it or nonprofit organizations are not talking about it or people who are justice, you know, justice focused, they're not talking about it. They're not talking about the extreme poverty in Latin American communities. They're not talking about gang problems in Latin American communities or if they are, it's always in a bad context, right? They try to paint people as criminals instead of just you know a social issue socioeconomic issues in these communities um we know we i've been to i've had hispanic cases and i and i hate to put it that way but i've had cases where i work with a hispanic family in the trailer they lived in it should have been condemned right so no one is advocating for those individuals no one is talking about the poverty in the latinx community no one is talking about how latinx individuals are the group that goes to college the least in in, uh, uh, in 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 North Carolina, I remember whenever I went to school, I could count with one hand the number of Hispanics I saw in my university, uh, in a in a county that's very very diverse and has a huge Hispanic population. Uh, whenever I was growing up, there were no Hispanic accountants, there were no Hispanic workers in Walmart, no Hispanic workers in McDonald's, and now I'm seeing that more. I'm seeing that way more, and I know to some listeners that may be oh it's just a job at Walmart. But you can tell now that it's a new wave of Hispanics growing up in the Southeast that are able to obtain these jobs and these opportunities. Um, so I, I just wish there was a more discussion about the Latinx experience, about the Latinx problems, apart from just immigration. Yeah, I really, I really like that answer. And I think that's a great response to this question because it's like, you know, what issue do we want to draw attention to? All of them, just like we do for every other marginalized communities. Like, why does the conversation get so specific when we're talking about Latinx communities? Why are we begin talking about immigration? Why don't we begin talking about all of the other issues that they're dealing with just like our other communities? So yeah, I really appreciate kind of that counter, like, 
what's one thing we should look at? Start looking at all of it first, and then we can start there. Right, right. I mean, I mean, of course, of course, not to de-emphasize immigration, but you know, I'm I'm a parent, I'm my parents' primary caretaker. Healthcare is important to me, right? Yeah. Um, I, I work with multiple families who are want to make sure that their kids actually are able to go to school and go to college. So affordable higher education matters to me, and it matters to them as well. So at the outreach is just not what I think should be. So whenever I do outreach in the Hispanic in the Latinx community or Hispanic community, I, I always incorporate these additional elements. You know, I know we had a huge portion about you know police accountability and police transparency. That is also a Latinx issue. I mean, we have multiple legislations uh, in the North Carolina General Assembly that impacts or deals with the relationship between police officers and the Latinx community, uh, like SB 101, for example, right? But whenever we do outreach, we don't, to, to, to the Latinx community, we don't bring these issues to them. It's always about immigration. I, I'm just loving this conversation. I think that, you know, Alyssa said it perfectly in terms of my reaction and how I'm reflecting on this answer, as well as something that you said earlier is I, had not heard that the Latinx group is the smallest group to go to college in North Carolina. I did not know that. Um, And I think that is especially shocking when we know also that um, the Latinx community is the fastest growing community in North Carolina and across the nation. Um, And so it's just another reminder that we clearly are not you know, like our, our society is clearly not serving the Latinx community properly, which like points itself to what you're saying about how if we're only talking to them about immigration, maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know, folks aren't able to go to school because we're not talking to them about education. We're not talking to them about um, their, their path to the, to, to their future about other things that they can do that don't have to do um, with immigration, especially when plenty of folks maybe aren't immigrants themselves. And so maybe that's not their top issue, which is fine. Or if you are an immigrant yourself and it's not your top issue, that's fine. You know, none of us are single issue people. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And look, another misconception there, I have multiple friends who are Hispanic and they don't speak a single word in Spanish, Mm -hmm. right? They were born here. Their parents were born here. Their grandparents were probably born here. Mm -hmm. So their immigrant uh, background, you know, goes back quite a bit. Um, and it's like we're being put in the same jar, so to speak, you know, me and Alyssa, both Latinx, uh, but different backgrounds, different, you know, stories to tell. Um, uh, and so, so yeah, you're right. I've spoken to many His, uh, Hispanics who are my age who don't see immigration as a top, top priority they want affordable health care. They want affordable education. They want good roads. They want good schools, right? But we don't talk, you know, we're, we're not, we don't talk to the Latinx community about these things. So mm-hmm. it's about immigration. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this is really just a good reminder of it's important to be like really intentional in the lens that we're viewing these intersectional issues from, because I feel like it's really easy to, you know, leave things out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But you know, you know, this despite despite these issues, just reworking the way we do outreach is going to be essential. Not just coming from a nonprofit mm-hmm. perspective or an organizer, 
but I'm hoping that some elected officials take notes as well, right? Uh, um, uh, about how to, or what to say to um, uh, a Latinx community, because even though we may have cultural differences across the board, we all of us want good schools. All of us want progress. All the ones want, want our communities to be better, to grow. We wanna see our kids do better than ourselves. Uh, and and, and you know, that, that requires policy changes. Mm, that's a good soundbite right there. So knowing that Latinx or Hispanic Heritage Month is something that we celebrate here in America, what exactly does Latinx Heritage Month mean to you as an El Salvadorian? You know what? I, I saw this question and I really, I really thought about it. I really tried to, you know, how do I feel about Latinx Heritage Month or Hispanic Heritage Month? And it, it, I, I, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know how I feel about it. It is, it is, a reminder, right? That, you know, we're we're part of this nation. We're part of this country, and um, that, you know, we we have made great achievements in this country. We we we've made our mark. Uh, we've been here for a very long time. I mean, just remember that the western part of this nation used to be part of Mexico officially until we. Mm-hmm fought a war with Mexico. Um, but it's just a reminder that, hey, we're, we're here, we exist, everyone. Um, and it's funny, and it would be interesting to do another one coming against, I guess, from a Native American perspective, because I've spoken to some of my Native American friends who view uh, Native American Heritage Month as a, hey, we are here, we exist, you know, we, we've made strides in this nation as well. So I, I think I think I like that perspective, um, uh, that there's more to it than what people think, right? There's more to it than, you know, your, your stereotypes, there's more to it than just uh, what, what is consumed in, in, in everyday life that's consumed in mainstream media. It's deeper than that. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense of it here, but I really did struggle with this particular question. Uh, and it's just a good reminder of, of who I am, um, even though I've never forgotten who I am. But it, it's, it's nice to see it in a, you know, it's, it's nice to see it out there. Yeah, I like this answer because, I mean, I feel like that's such a weird thing to say. I like your answer, but I, I, it's, it's impactful to me, especially after um, all the conversations we've we had for Black History Month where everyone had a very different answer. Everyone just feels differently about it. And that is very normal, right? So the fact that you don't know what you feel, I think is extremely relatable. Um, so yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I get the fact that it's like, I don't know how to feel. It's almost like it's there and that's that's it. <laughs> I like that it's there, but that's it. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think similar perspectives. Um, and at the same time, I like to celebrate my heritage every single month. You know what I yeah. mean? And that's that's something that uh, I, I celebrate it every single day. I mean, Spanish is what I speak at home. Um, uh, so, so yeah, it, it, it's it, it's it's nice to see it. I guess. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> but I guess that's as, as far as it goes. Sorry, I'm just cracking up while I'm mute by saying your thanks. <laughs> I think a lot of people would also feel that way. Yeah, um, and 
just to add something more to what Alyssa said, I like that, you know, you know, of course, you know, we, we, we've talked about it throughout, you know, this episode, um, the different perspectives, the different backgrounds. And I got something that I like to emphasize is that there are a lot of languages in Latin America. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not just Spanish. I just happen to speak Spanish. Your, your friend probably also just happens to speak Spanish. But the indigenous community in Latin America is huge. OK, and they have their own languages and they're also immigrants. Um, there was nothing more frustrating than, you know, getting a, a case um, where it was a Hispanic family whenever I was a social worker. And I went there and I didn't know what they were saying. They were speaking Nahuatl, for example, which is a language spoken in Guatemala or southern Mexico. Um, or, or they were speaking, you know, another indigenous languages, a language found in Mexico and other parts of Latin America. So it's more to it. It's deeper than just what you think Latin X means. Yeah. I like that. It's deeper. It's deeper than what you think. And kind of thinking along, you know, those words you were just sharing, is there anything else that you would, you would want our listeners to, you know, leave this podcast knowing or hearing? Hmm. I don't know what I could say without actually sounding like a broken record and just repeating myself, you know, definitely just reemphasizing that it, it, and it's been said multiple locations in, in, in a huge, you know, uh, or how can I say this? It's been said in multiple locations with a lot of people hearing it, if that makes any sense where we're clearly not a monolith. We have multiple languages, multiple experiences. Your Caribbean, um, you know, my Caribbean brothers and sisters, like Puerto Ricans, for example, they're US citizens. They have a completely different, you know, uh, experience than let's say someone from El Salvador and me from El Salvador has a completely different experience uh, than someone from Mexico. And we have completely different experience, uh, you know, between a documented and an undocumented individual, uh, I guess, just to reemphasize that it is, it is deeper. There's more to it. And to keep in mind that if you're doing more outreach to the Latinx community, please talk about more than just immigration, right? <laughs> you know, again, you never know the stories of these families, of these people, of these potential voters. You really have to bring more to the table than just talking about immigration because they'll make, they'll make the same mistakes other, other groups have, have made. Uh, you know, I've, at a meeting one time, and this is before my Democracy NC days, uh, a lady got frustrated. I'm already here. What else do you have to offer? Why should I vote for you? Right? Uh, so so keep that in mind. Of course. Well, thank you, Manny, just for reminding us that, you know, there's so much to learn about Latinx and Hispanic experiences and heritage and culture. And thanks for sharing yours and your experiences with us today. We really appreciated you being here. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate you. Thanks for joining us as we celebrate Latinx culture and continue to create a North Carolina that's built by us. And thanks for listening to this podcast made of, by, and for the people. Ooh, bye. Bye. Connect with us on social media. 
You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DemocracyNC. Or you can visit our website at democracync.org.